the power of understanding macro trends tell a story for the longer term. So good leaders who believe in strategy, um, you know, my belief is that you should really, really understand what those global trends are, what those macro trends are, so you can actually plan for the future, execute well with the realities of what you have, but not understanding the macro trends lands you in trouble in terms of investments, in terms of your time horizon in making changes, in terms of how you build your teams. Hey there, this is Ben. Thanks for tuning in to Lead the Team. Before we jump in, we just broke into the top 3% of all podcasts globally, and that's largely due to the support of listeners just like you. I invite you to subscribe so you're notified when we release a new episode and also leave a quick review. Welcome back to Lead the Team with number one best-selling author and in-demand corporate trainer, Ben Fanning. On this podcast, the world's most innovative senior leaders share their top success strategies to motivate your direct reports, cultivate your top leaders, and accelerate your career. Let's get started. Here's Ben. Hey there, Lead the Team Nation. Welcome back to the show. I've got a great one in store for you today with Ajit Shivadasan, who's Lenovo's president and global head of D2C, which means direct to consumer. He is the founding executive of Lenovo's global online strategy starting in 2006 across his B2C and B2B businesses. Over the last 15 plus years, he's led a global team that has helped craft Lenovo's global online sales from five countries or grown it from five countries to 35 plus countries and Lenovo's footprint into 90 plus countries. During this period, revenues and profits, very good news here, have grown over 15x and units by also over 15x in the B2C segment. He's also served in leadership roles at companies you know, like Gateway and Deloitte. And in case you're not familiar with Lenovo, which I suspect you might be, but just in case you aren't, it's a $70 billion company with over 75,000 employees worldwide. And as being the world's largest PC company, they've also expanded in a lot of other key areas like servers, storages, storage units, mobility, solutions, and services. Ajit, welcome to the show, sir. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate yeah, the time. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this. So you say that macro trends tell a story that enables leaders to make better long-term decisions. What do you mean by that? You know, you know, the world, I mean, as we know it, is driven by a lot of factors that we don't control necessarily in our day-to-day -day lives. And, you know, what we all really struggle with is the day-to-day -day and, you know, what's going to happen tomorrow. But the reality is, if you really want to build a sustainable business, you kind of have to think about the long term. And the long term is driven, you know, believe it or not, by a few things, which is, you know, obviously the power of nations, I mean, the evolving strength of nations and economies, uh, power of demographics, which, by the way, was something that I learned from Peter Drucker when I was a student at the Drucker School in the late 90s. Hmm. His entire thesis was that demographics tell a story and understanding demographics. And, and he meant demographics at the level of the nation, at the, at the, at the level of the world, really told a story about who is going to be strong tomorrow and who's going to be weak. Good example is uh, Japan, as an example, is a country that's got a demographic that's actually aging. 
Um, mm-hmm. India tomorrow will be the youngest nation with 300 million people who are below the age of 25. China is an aging nation. US is an aging nation. Now, when you really start thinking about that, it has profound implications for your working age population, the burden on retirement and what it actually means to healthcare costs. Um, it, mm. it means who is going to drive adoption, who is going to be uh, the folks or the demographic segment that's going to push growth in your country. So the power of understanding macro trends tell a story for the longer term. So good leaders who believe in strategy, um, you know, my belief is that you should really, really understand what those global trends are, what those macro trends are, so you can actually plan for the future, execute well with the realities of what you have, but not Mm -hmm. understanding the macro trends lands you in trouble in terms of investments, in terms of your time horizon in making changes, in terms of how you build your teams. Well, sure, macro trends on those three countries, but you've got 90 plus (laughs) that you're looking at. Um, How are you breaking that down based on the the 90 plus because it's maybe it's hard to get the attention to detail across all 90. Yeah, well I mean remember you can always break it down. You look at a macro trend at a at a global level, then you look at it at a regional level and you say look mm-hmm. in India there are I don't know 50 countries or 40 countries or you know which are the ones that are growing the fastest. So Germany, France, uh, UK, as an example, are significant economies that drive much of the growth in Europe. Uh, you look at you look at Asia Pacific. You say, well, Japan is a big, uh, big player. Mm-hmm. Korea is a big player. India is a big player. China is a big player. So you kind of yeah. start doing your Pareto and understanding the breakdown of countries within the region, and then you say, there's a new set of trends that emerge. So of course, you don't stop. The macro can mean macro at many levels, right? So macro at a global level, because I run a global business, but my guys who run the geographies or ladies who run the geographies, uh, they have a much more um, better and deeper understanding of what their geography looks like. So you could really dig into this at at a level that you are comfortable with, but at every level, the trends exist, the data exists that allows you to make better decisions long-term. When it comes to macro trends, what's something that leaders are missing right now? Uh, You know, the best example is people trying to deal with inflation right now. I mean, inflation is something that nobody understands. So we have increased the interest rate four times, massive interest rates that we have never seen in the history of United States for the last 50 years. And yet inflation still is at about 6%. Interest Mm -hmm. rate, long-term interest rates are at 7%. So you're gone from 3 to 7% and inflation is still not getting tamed. It's not something people understand. It's not intuitive. Now, you look at Japan as an example. When we started the year, the fiscal year last year, we expected the yen, the hedge rate for the yen was about 112 yen to a dollar. Mm-hmm. Right now, the yen is at 140 to a dollar. Mm. So you've seen a 30% depreciation of the yen. Uh, these are not things people predicted. These are not things people really thought about. At least it was not in the mainstream media where people, you know, economists were mm-hmm. saying, hey, look, the Japanese yen is going to depreciate by 30 or 40%. So my sense is that people are still not, I mean, they might be, but I'm saying they don't factor these things in mm-hmm. when they're thinking about where to make investments, what to hedge, how to kind of protect your business, where should you, uh, where should you grow more? 
et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, so those are two examples of that's happening right now that we don't truly understand. And yet we are making decisions all day long. Yeah, it's important to think about these factors. Yeah, and I like the macro trend sort of focus for leaders. I think maybe they rely upon external sources for this kind of information. And it sounds like Lenovo, you guys are really focused on having your own internal metrics and macros to look at. Look, I mean, I'm not, by the way, most leaders know these things. So it's not like I'm saying something that is so revolutionary. I think most most sensible leaders are always worried about what the longer trend uh, data is. Um, you know, they're, they're always concerned. The question is, how much do you bring that into your day-to-day working? And how do you actually mm-hmm. institutionalize that so that you're making the best possible decisions for the short term? And then by definition, making better decisions for the longer term. Yeah, it makes real, a lot of sense that, that you mentioned the, the average age of the population today and thinking about it from the computer business standpoint and yeah. how technology is going to be utilized. If it's an older if it's an older demographic, they may have different needs than the younger, right? I suspect. Well, it's not even that. Actually, it is much more profound and more important than just selling a few PCs. It mm-hmm. really is about where do you find talent? So when you talk about 300 million people in India who are below the age of 25, the workforce of tomorrow is going to get powered by these folks. I mean, these are highly educated. These are people who are computer literate. Um, This is going to become a place where there is going to be talent. So if you're really thinking about where should I move my operations for the longer term, um, I would say think about India because that's where all the young people are going to be. And that's where you will need the talent. Uh, so if you don't have an understanding of the business, you don't make the right investments now, 10 years down the line, it's going to be super expensive and you're not going to be established. Yeah, excellent point there. Excellent point. You also say that you're an extremely data-driven leader. And it's important to make decisions by by leveraging the data, an example of which you just uh, provided there. Uh, when's the time that being extremely data-driven is paid off? for you? And when's the time maybe uh, it's had a limitation? Yeah, I mean, rather than going to specific examples, I'll just tell you that, look, data at the end of the day is never going to be perfect. See, that's part of the problem. You have a lot of data and you have to analyze the data. And the person who analyzes the data and looks at the data gets to different conclusion. You know, you and I will look at the same data and get to two different conclusions. Sure. The question is, The question is, are you having a conversation that's rooted in data? Does your team make decisions based on data? Are you really looking at data from a longer longer trend standpoint? So it's not like one anomaly that happens or one bit of information that comes in and you're making decisions. But if you have institutional way of looking at data, then you tend to have the hygiene and the discipline to look at stuff and understand it before it becomes a problem. So look, I mean, mm-hmm. we make lots of decisions at varying levels, long-term, short-term, daily decisions based on data. Um, the key is how do you how do you make a number of decisions, you know, out of all the decisions that you make that are better than your competition? You're not going to get them all right. The question is, how do you make better decisions um, at least consistently that's better than competition? Um, look, the, the flip side of this conversation is I know several people who spend a lot of time looking at data and then get paralyzed because they don't have the perfect data and then they lose the opportunity 
to get something to market mm. faster, to take some risks. So at best, you're going to have ambiguous data. I mean, it's never going yeah. to be perfect like they tell you in the textbooks. Uh, but the ability for you to really use that muscle consistently allows you to understand that, look, it's not perfect, but I'm getting directional information here that's, that I can use to get something to market faster, make decisions faster, or at the very least, have the ability to experiment and test my hypothesis. So if it works, great. If it doesn't work, at least I know it doesn't work. See, knowing that something doesn't work is more is equally important as knowing something is going to work. So uh, the process of eliminating your, you know, your variables is a very important way to make decisions. So that's why I say, look, data is, you know, you can have lots of data, but the discipline of using it the right way, I think is more important. Yeah, I think, uh, man, that is so, so good. And I was going to ask you, I said, you know, what well, what's your advice for leaders to make great decisions with bad data? And I think you just gave us a great example of it, right? We'll come up with a hypothesis, test it, and also avoid analysis paralysis because no data set is perfect. I mean, that's the trick to the whole matter, right? And and I like what you said. You like uh, just just basically assume that your competition has the same data that you have. The question is, and the magic is going to be in how you utilize it. How do you go about that as as a leader? Absolutely. So. And also your perspective is that human beings make decisions irrationally at a high predictable rate. I just love that quote. Again, human beings make decisions irrationally at a highly predictable rate. Uh, tell me more about that. You know, this um, the, the field of behavioral economics, which, you know, you might know people like uh, Daniel Kahneman, who actually won the Nobel Prize recently for behavioral economics. Uh, also, uh, Dan Ariely, who wrote the book, Predictably Irrational. I think the basic premise is very simple, that human beings are irrational, but they are consistently irrational, meaning they make impulsive decisions, even without knowing. So there is a lot of things that they actually make decisions on, which they think is very logical, but it's not very logical, but they consistently make the same mistakes. Therefore, um, there is a beauty in understanding the irrationality of how human beings make decisions because there's an opportunity there. Yeah, I like that. I uh, understand based on this, this, some of the science research that I've seen that all decisions are made in the limbic part of the brain, which does not respond to rational thought or numbers. So every time we're making that buying decision, That's it's right. coming it's- from a place of just pure, sheer emotion. Yeah, I mean, of course, there's always, um, you know, extremes of people who are, you know, can be extremely irrational. And then there's a whole bunch of people who are who understand that they're irrational and therefore they're correct. But the reality is that a lot of people, especially people in the middle, um, they tend to be impulsive. And how you leverage that or how you, you know, how you use that in your own personal lives and not falling into the trap of kind of letting your so-called logical brain make the decision um, always pays dividends because you step back and you say, look, am I making the right decision? Want to boost your productivity and decision-making? Get vital insights from each episode delivered directly to your inbox. A great resource, whether you've listened to the episode or not. Go to benfanning.com slash insight. So thinking back over your career, what advice would you give your younger self? 
or maybe something new, something that you would have tried uh, earlier in your career? No, you know, I, I talk often to younger people who are coming into the workforce and they're looking for advice and they always ask me, hey, you know, what what is it that you have as advice for me? You know, so a few things that I tell people, and this may or may not answer your question directly, but in terms of advice that I tell people is that, look, don't worry about money when making decisions about jobs, at least initially in your career. You know, make decisions based on what you really want to do. And I tell this to my kids all the time. I tell this to all the young people around me. I, I tell them that, look, make decisions based on what you truly like. And if you truly like something, there is a greater chance that you're going to be great at it. And at some point, you will become the expert. And that has a premium value. We kind of you know, go back to what Malcolm Gladwell wrote in his book, Outliers. And the basic premise is that, look, you need to put in 10,000, 15,000 hours of dedicated time in any particular field for you to really be good at it. So you know, 15,000 hours or 20,000 hours is a lot of time. So if you're going to put that kind of time, you better like what you're doing. Because at the end of the day, People who are passionate about doing things, people who are really, really, um, you know, people who like doing what they're doing, they are, the, they are the ones who are likely going to succeed the most in that field. So that's the, that's the two things that I tell people is don't worry too much about money. Think about something that you really like. Spend a lifetime trying to get better at it because you will at some point become the expert and that has some value. Yeah, I like that. Subject matter expertise. Yeah, if you double down on it, I mean, we double versus double downing and getting really into something you don't like and becoming a subject matter expert. You know, a lot of people fall into that trap. They get really good at something initially and they don't really pay attention to whether they like it or not, but someone else is finding value in it. And then they get paid. They get professional recognition. They get their LinkedIn profile all around something. And uh, it gets tough. It gets difficult to, to kind of break free of that. A lot of listeners may or may not know there was a time where I somehow became to develop my expertise in customs compliance early, early in my career. And I knew I'm like, I do not want to be known as, as the customs compliance person. I don't know if you ever dealt, I'm sure you've probably dealt with that uh, at a very high level, perhaps in your career with, with, with shipping PCs and whatnot. And it's people that love it congratulations to them and they can be a, a subject matter expertise and probably do great. But my goodness, man, I did not want to go down that road. So my solution was I just stopped talking about it. Still helped out with it, had a team related to it, but I just stopped advertising that I was a customer's compliance person. If I was able to transition away from that, be yeah, a brutal, <laughs> brutal for me at least. Yeah, good for uh, you. You recognized it. Yeah. Yeah. Recognize it. And I love the fact and we're talking about early in the in your career, that's specifically great advice, but it's never too late to right the ship. Once a time you had an unexpected twist or failure in your career and how did it lead to your success or growth on down the road? You know, I have been in the space of e-commerce for more than 20 years. And e-commerce, as you probably know, when I started, was not everybody's cup of tea. It wasn't something that uh, people readily accepted. Lenovo as an example, I was hired in Lenovo in 2006, and Lenovo is a channel company. It still is. You know, predominantly, our business, 95% of our business goes through the channel. 
And, and it's a very, very- You say the channel, can you be more specific about it? Channel, like, you know, we sell through partners and resellers and bars and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, system integrators. So we have a whole network of people that help us sell our, uh, our yeah. computers distribution. Um, and then, you know, I, I focus on selling directly to the end user. So obviously there is some level of uh, conflict in that model. And for every time somebody has told me that e-commerce is not going to work, uh, if I had a do- dollar for that, I would probably be way more richer than I am today. So, uh, so the fact is, you know, going through something like e-commerce, and I call myself an evangelist because you need to be constantly selling internally um, about the power of e-commerce and what what it's mm. what it's worth to the company in terms of. Um, all the things that e-commerce actually does, you know, building relationship with the customer, monetizing the customer differently, building an experience that our customers understand, getting the feedback in real time. So, so many benefits. But yet, because 95% of our business comes from distribution or an indirect method, it is very easy for us to uh, basically say, hey, look, this doesn't work. We should not invest. We should not move. And quite frankly, 15, 20 years ago, that was every single day. So it was almost mm. walking uphill, you know, moving that boulder up mm-hmm. the hill only to find yourself getting crushed every so often. Um, but look, at the end of the day, I fundamentally believed that this is the way the world was going to evolve. I believed in the concept and then mm. I kept kept moving. So there are various examples along the way where we have had situations where people have told, told me, uh, not particularly in Lenovo, but also at Gateway, where people have said, look, this is just a fad. It's going to go away. Um, and today we have Amazon, which is a trillion-dollar company. So the rest, as they say, is history. But the reality is going through the last 20 years trying to drive e-commerce has been incredibly exhilarating on one side, but also mm. incredibly frustrating because you know I can see it, but trying to explain to a person who doesn't see it is incredibly difficult. Yeah, so what's one of your – or what's been one of your most effective strategies – to sell an idea to the C-suite or to someone other influential in the company that doesn't see it from your perspective? Yeah, look, I mean, um, my early on strategy and even today has always been about experimentation. So I say, look, we don't have to take a big risk. We take a small risk, a small country, a small market, a small uh, you know set of products. So let's mm-hmm. not, we don't have to do everything at scale. We don't have to invest millions of dollars on day one, but let's prove the concept. And if the concept doesn't work, great, you're right. If the concept works, let's see if we can make it a little bit bigger, right? So I started with four countries. Then I said, maybe we should expand into two more. Mm-hmm. Then we said, let's expand into two or three countries in EMEA. And people were dead against, uh, in some cases, saying, no, 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 this is going to completely destroy our business. But the reality is, you got to get people comfortable. And the reason mm-hmm. why they are reluctant is because they've had bad experiences. They are worried about their customers. They're worried about their business. So there's always a legitimate reason why they are worried about why we should not do something. So the key is to make sure that we are really trying to figure out how to make them comfortable, take small risks that can prove the point. What are three success strategies that all employees need to be keeping in mind right now? Three strategies for employees. Well, some of the things that I've been saying, which is really, you got to be, in today's world, be very digitally aware. Um, You need to really be on top of data. You need to understand it. At some level, you need to be data-driven. 
your decision making has to really, really um, look at information because people are making decisions with information. And if you don't, then you're at a disadvantage. Um, and the third one is really for at least the younger people really thinking about being open, being open-minded. The world is changing mm -hmm. so rapidly and things are changing so dynamically that you don't want to have your head buried in the sand and, and have the world pass by you. So be open, try different things. You never know what the next paradigm is going to, that's going to become the big thing. So uh, those are the three things I would tell for younger people that are coming into the workforce, that are looking at new opportunities, even for middle managers, actually. Hmm. What's your favorite way to stay open-minded as a leader, even if as you've had success? Which sometimes success can blind people to being open on other things because what you're doing is working. So, so what do you do to, to keep that edge? Yeah. So look, I mean, um, so this is another classic thing that I tell people that as, as you start becoming a middle manager, your focus is entirely operational. You mm -hmm. spend maybe 80% of your time just, you know, you get your sleeves up, you're kind of changing the wheels and the tires and you have grease in your hand and you're really doing the heavy lifting. But as you start mm -hmm. becoming a much more senior person, you become much more paranoid because you know the bad cycles will repeat. So mm -hmm. I tell my team, like as an example, this cycle was something that I was predicting for the last two or three years. And I've been telling my team that, look, we've had great times, but trust me, bad times are going to follow. And we got to have the same resilience and the same mindset to kind of overcome bad times. It takes strong leadership and good, um, good folks you know, dedicated folks to get through a crisis um, with, with, you know, with minimum damage, let's put it that way. You're always going to have some challenges, but how you come out of it is a function of your resilience. So the key for all of us is to really kind of look at these things and say, adversity is an opportunity and treat it with respect and you're going to come out of it looking good. So, um, you know, business is not always fun and games. It's not always about growth. When there is a time of downturn and things are not working, you got to dig deeper. You got to go figure out intellectually how to think about the world, use data, use the macro trends, use all of the information you have to really understand when you're going to get out of it and how best to get out of it. Where do you need to invest? Uh, what, are, what are the things that's going to turn as you know, COVID went away? What are the new opportunities that came along? So mm -hmm. I think really understanding the cycles and understanding the trends really help you navigate whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. And so for me, as you're transitioning from a middle manager to a senior manager, you tend to become more paranoid. And you say, look, bad things are going to happen. Be paranoid. But also, mm -hmm. also, your people are not spending as much time on strategy. So I switched from being 80% operational to 80% strategy, because I know I'm the one who is now responsible for making sure that I'm looking at the trends, I'm looking at the data, I'm asking the questions yeah. to my teams that are kind of in the trenches and really focused on driving the operational stuff can look up and say, oh, what's the next thing? So that, that transition and that ability for you to really understand strategy and operational and the mix of how you're going to spend your time, I think it's crucial. When's the time that an adversity that you face created an opportunity for you? or your business? Well, I mean, COVID is a perfect example. We don't have to look too far away, right? I mean, COVID was, uh, you know, when COVID started, um, you know, we literally thought the business world was going to end. 
simply because our entire manufacturing was in Wuhan. And mm. Wuhan was wow. the center, was the epicenter of the, of the disease. And 80% of all manufacturing happens in Wuhan uh, from a supply chain standpoint. Um, the other side was, you know, understanding what actually COVID was going to do in terms of working from home, studying from home, mm-hmm. what happens to those um, new paradigms that are emerging, right? Luckily, uh, as I was thinking about longer trends and thinking about where the world was going five years ago, we already started thinking that there is going to be a much more push towards democratization of education um, and hybrid working. Some of those things we already predicted they are going to happen. So in preparation for some of these things, we already started thinking about what, how do you sell to students? What are the things that students actually mm. care about? How do you think about gaming differently? What is what are the SMB customers going to want in the in the event uh, of a digital transformation that's going to unfold? Quite frankly, when these things happen, we were already prepared. We already had talked about it. We didn't have all the answers because the company wasn't ready, but at least we knew. Okay, yeah, and it happened pretty much within overnight. weeks or days. Correct. Correct. And then yeah. I, I, you know, I look like a genius because. We've been talking about this thing for the last two years and suddenly it's here. So we were actually a lot more prepared to kind of deal with something that happened quite unexpectedly. But they were like, Ajit, you've been telling us about this, but you never said it was going to happen overnight. Yeah. Yeah. Missed that macro trend. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Who did, who who expected that though? That's right. Oh man. Uh, But excellent point though. We all had the same information of what was happening. Uh, we all, you know, reading, reading the news and I doubt anybody had that kind of crystal ball, uh, to be able to predict that, but companies did and leaders responded differently to it and some thrived and some did not. Absolutely. So what's a tool or gadget that's contributed to your success that listeners could go out and purchase? You know, I'm not a gadget person, believe it or not. I try to actually be... Completely... What? I can't believe it. Yep. I am, um, believe it or not, I don't like gadgets. Hmm. And I tend to use uh, things for a long period of time. Okay. I hate switching. Um, but I, I would say, and this is probably true for everybody, I think my phone is by far the one product that I think I cannot live without because I spend so much time on it. Uh, and pretty much do everything on a phone. So if I didn't have anything, but I had a phone, I could be very productive. But if I didn't have a phone, I would be in trouble. Um, So yeah, I'm not a big gadgets person, although I, you know, everybody sends me all kinds of gadgets, Um, you know, whether it's the Oculus set or whether it's the latest, uh, latest phone or latest tablet or two in one or flexible. I've got like 10 different computers sitting around, Uh, but uh, I'm not, I'm not somebody who goes out and buys the latest and greatest. I tend to stay with my tech, but like to use my tech properly. Hmm. So what it, thinking about it a little bit differently in terms of tools, it could be uh, magazines, it could be uh, newsletters. Uh, what are you, because I'm really curious, you, you talked a lot about information, data, macro trends. What are the publications or podcasts that, that you're leveraging just on top of all that? I just read. I mean, uh, you know, one of the ways I keep in touch with all of these um, is I I write and I present. I do, you know, during COVID, I was doing about 30 to 40 talks a year. Uh, and in order for me to be good at it, I just have to spend enough time researching. 
So I do all of my research. Um, I pull the data from, you know, whatever sources are available, whether it's IDZ, Gartner, all of the kind of usual suspects. Um, I go look at the uh, look at the podcast and others, uh, you know, YouTube, you know, use all of the channels available to, to get the information that I need to mm-hmm. get a point of view. And then I try to make that point of view my own uh, and then use some of those insights to go test. So as a combination of, you know, my whole thing is about building hypothesis. What if, what if this happened? What if this happened? Um, are we sure? Should we test it? Can we, can we try it? So it's always trial and error and experimentation to try and understand how the world is changing and evolving. So it's the easiest way. And then when I go present at conferences, I go talk to people, make presentations. I always love to get feedback. Um, I, may, I, I post on LinkedIn, as an example, you might have seen some of my LinkedIn posts. The whole mm-hmm. idea of posting is not to really see how many likes you get. It's really to try and see what people are saying. Because some people are, will come back and say, look, I mean, you know, interesting point of view, but I, I don't think it's, that's the way it's going to go. And I'm always curious when people say something is not going to work. I like, I love to debate, want to talk to people about something, even if it is some mindless stuff. The whole point for me is intellectually being curious and really trying to understand what is those different points of views. By the way, just a plug for Peter Drucker. Peter, when he was teaching and I went to Claremont to study under Peter, his entire premise was your ability to actually use social sciences and um, really understanding the world from different Mm -hmm. lenses, looking at a problem from different areas is crucial to really understanding the problem really well. Mm -hmm. Half the issue is really understanding the problem really well. Because once Mm -hmm. you understand the problem really well, you appreciate both sides. You are then able to take measures that are going to be much more foolproof and much more fundamentally sound. So to me, that's that's how I get my information. I go deep into areas, mm-hmm. um, you know, whether it's a Harvard Business Review article or whether it's a, a YouTube video on how to do something. Um, it's all commonly available stuff, nothing special or fancy, just basic academic stuff. Um, I, I should probably be in a professor, quite frankly, but that's kind of my mode of operation. Okay. So this is, this is really interesting. So... Um... You mentioned Peter Drucker, mentioned Harvard Business Review. Do you have subscriptions to those? Do you subscribe to those? Or are you just doing cert research, Googling, going through it? Okay. And- I've got enough, I've got enough contacts in the academic world um, and through my consulting uh, engagements that mm-hmm. I get enough of those publications forwarded to me yeah. or sent to me. Okay, comes comes your way. And I liked your idea about why you use LinkedIn. Uh and versus getting exposure, getting likes to creating conversation and engagement. And there's definitely not as much of that sometimes on people's LinkedIn feeds. Uh, do you have a certain group of people on LinkedIn that specifically are, I'm trying to, is it, how reliable is LinkedIn, I guess, for getting that kind of feedback? Is it is it pretty reliable when you make a post that you get the feed, that kind of feedback or versus appearing in their feeds and getting the right people to see it. I mean, what's your approach to that? Do you, do you forward it around or? No, I mean, I, I have a pretty decent following, like eight, 9,000 people that follow me on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a, it's a you know good community of people that are in my field and I trust their opinion. Um, so it's, you know, and I write about topics that are really something that I'm thinking about. 
So I, I don't try to do anything that is super fancy. I'm not talking about my travels. I'm not talking about anything that is not relevant to work. Um, so if I'm talking about going back to the office post-COVID mm-hmm. uh, or trying to talk about leadership or any of those topics, it's a measured uh, point of view. And I'm really asking yeah. specific questions. So uh, it's been it's been a pretty good tool for me personally. So wrapping this up, Ajit, what's your parting thought for listeners today? Well, I was going to say that, look, I mean, we are in a period of uncertainty, lots of things happening that we don't understand. But at the end of the day, you always think about the long term. I mean, the short term is going to be tough. Uh, It's going to require resilience. Uh, The kind of things that were working in the past couple of years may not work as well. But at the end of the day, I think the opportunity is always there. So people should always, even when the chips are down, they should be keeping their ears peeled for opportunities. So don't don't let the clouds on the horizon um, dissuade you from looking at the opportunities because the sunshine is going to follow soon. Thank you, G. Thank you, sir. If you're an executive at a crossroads in your career and thinking about quitting, do this before you do anything else. Head over to benfanning.com slash quit to receive a free signed copy of my number one best-selling book, The Quit Alternative, The Blueprint for Creating the Job You Love Without Quitting. You'll learn the critical questions you must answer before you make such an impactful decision. Go to benfanning.com slash quit to get this valuable resource for just the cost of shipping. Ben Fanning is a number one best-selling author, Inc. Magazine columnist, and CEO of the Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.